0: Welcome to Unapologetically Us, the podcast where immigrants and their children celebrate our unique heritage, consider what it means to live in between cultures, and contemplate what it means to be American. I am your host, Dr. B. And welcome back. Today, I am talking with friends of mine, Hetty and Jen Ha'an who I met when I was at Penn State, I was looking for a church. It's actually a really interesting story. And some residents of mine had gone to this church called Harvest, which was right across the street from my um, dorm room. And I said, let me check it out. And I went in and I was probably the only black face there, but I remember loving the worship. Like I just love guitar, I love acoustic sounds and I remember loving the worship, but even more, I really appreciated the fellowship that the community that I had with the people there. And Jen and Hetty were one were two uh, of the people within my community. And it's had such a lasting effect on me. So I just am so grateful that we're still able to connect and talk today. And then I remember when you guys came to Cincinnati. But I don't, were you pregnant, Hetty?
1: I was, you know, so recently that memory came up on my photo feed because it was 10 years ago. So. I was, was going to ask yeah. how long ago was that? Yeah, okay. it was about 10 years ago, but I was pregnant with my oldest, Ellie, and she's turning 10 in September. So.
0: Wow. Yeah, I remember. So you guys were doing a road trip and we went to Grater's, the Ice King Creamery here. And I remember it was like part of me trying to show you Cincinnati. And we got, I don't know if you remember, but one of you or both of us, like, one two of us got um, a chocolate cherry chip ice cream and I liked it so much and I learned it was only available in February. I think it was, it must've been February you guys came. So since then, every February I go to get that <laughs> ice cream and I I literally, I think of you guys every time I do it. Like I do it in honor of that moment when I discovered oh. the ice cream and I make it part of my Valentine's Day thing. So I just want you to know how much I think of you at least every February.
2: <laughs> well, I think we'll talk a lot more over the next few minutes. But we found that ice cream at the you supermarket. Did? Yeah, so.
0: Whole, Whole
1: Foods has it. So we found like little pints of it and stuff. Oh, nice. So so, I didn't know.
2: All of you listening out there in virtual land, if you got something really valuable out of this (laughs) podcast today, is Whole Foods sells graters ice cream, and you have to go get this. I forget the exact flavor, but we do get it like once every few months.
0: Oh, see, look at that ice cream kept us connected, (laughs) which (laughs) that's beautiful. Okay, so today we're going to talk about raising children who are second generation. Now, Hetty, you were telling me that you were born in Korea and came to the U.S. when you were four. And Jen, you have a very interesting story. I guess I forgot this, that you were born in Korea, but you lived in Argentina from Mm -hmm. three to 12. So there's so much to explore here. I'm curious. Do you all know what led your families to leave Korea?
2: I can go first. As I get older, it's interesting trying to get to know what my family is about, because some things that I just kind of accepted when I was a child. But as I get older, I'm like, wait a minute. Why did we go to Argentina (laughs) of all places? (laughs) And so my parents and I, so my parents are first generation immigrants. So they're pretty much Korean. That's their first language. That's Mm -hmm. what they talk to me Mm -hmm. in. So there's a little bit of a language barrier between me and my parents. Mm -hmm. And so even when I was trying to kind of get the full story, I would say that it was tough for me to fully kind of communicate with them. And that's always been the case. So when I when I asked them, I, it was kind of an interesting story. They pretty much they said that they saw an ad in the newspaper that said, hey, you can immigrate to Argentina and have all this land. And and they my dad is the oldest out of uh, six. And my mom is not the oldest, but she's like out of seven. And they lived in this tiny little room. And it, it was just this kind of a dream of more space, you know, having more more space. And so right. that's what I'm told that pretty much and then it's kind of funny like they saw it and then they didn't really think about it and then they're like wait we got to do it and then they couldn't find the ad and then they were like hunting to go find that newspaper then they found it and then pretty much you no, know, they left everything behind the the full story goes along something along the, the lines of like they packed bags and they packed that tent because they didn't really know anybody in Argentina and the, the plan was you know, they they read about the weather. Worst case, we're just going to go find a place and just pitch a tent. But they ended up meeting some people on the airplane. And my dad, of all the traits that that I kind of admire about him, is he's extremely street smart.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: he was doing networking, even though he has an elementary school education. Mm-hmm. Um, so being the first of of a large family, he had to drop out to, mm-hmm. to help. But um, he made some connections on the airplane. And they're like, oh, there's this. Person that you need to go see, and then you can find a place to live temporarily, and this and that, and so on and so forth. But we ended up apparently just wanting more space, kind of this big dream of moving out of Korea. And then at some point in Argentina, there must have been another dream of like, okay, we're gonna go to America, land of opportunity, all that stuff. And that was a really long process because the to, to get a visa to to the US is not easy. And so that's a different story. But I'll kind of stop there and I'll let Hetty.
0: So that means that. There was never any plan to return to. Korea. No, I don't. I don't think so. Okay, because I was going to ask you if you've ever heard of the term third culture kid, and if that's mm-hmm. something you identified with. But third culture kids usually their parents are expatriates and are going back. So your story is more like your parents were like, "Hey, why not? Let's just do it."
2: <laughs> that's that's the sense that I got. But again, there's th- definitely a little bit of a language barrier. Very right. So I'm going to have to ask again. And I actually secretly recorded my mom doing this. I hope I didn't break any laws, but uh, so she was just folding laundry and just telling me, it's actually really good thing to do with your parents or grandparents if you can. Just have them talk because they'll just right. tell stories.
0: Right. I agree with that. Yeah, Heidi, go ahead. So with me, my
1: aunt and my grandparents on my dad's side, they were already in America. And then back, I think, in the 80s, Like if you had family members in the U.S., it was easier to come over. Yeah, because they would kind of like host or or sponsor you. So I think with my parents, it's definitely interesting because in Korea, like my dad had like a pretty decent job. He was a construction manager. But I think that they looked at, okay, well, you know, his parents were over here along with like some of his siblings. And I think they did see it as a better opportunity for us because I have a brother who's older than me. And I think they saw it as an, a better opportunity for us to grow up in America versus Korea. Mm. So we came and then, you know, when I was four, I think I was four, around three or four. And it's interesting because, yeah, my dad, like, you know, he didn't know how to speak English. My mom didn't know how to speak English. So they came, they started working, I think, at a dry cleaner first. And then from there, I think they eventually bought like a little fish market, definitely interesting to think about because they gave up you know a better paying job or, or yeah. a, a more prestigious job for the opportunity of coming yeah. to America so and then I think with us too there was no thoughts of going back mm-hmm. I think this was where we were going to come and live and yeah. and make our home yeah
0: and that's true a true story of many immigrants that they are actually doing well or they have good jobs or fulfilling jobs in their home country but they don't have the resources they have life the quality of life that they want So they leave home, come to the States and end up taking lower paying jobs just to have, I guess, a better quality of life and for their children. So I think that's a really interesting correlation. Do either of you recall ever not fitting in or any encounter where you felt like maybe I don't belong here?
2: (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Story story of our lives, really. I, I had to do that twice, right? So I can tell you in Argentina. So Latin America is kind of different in terms of there's such a diversity uh, of like skin colors and cultures and all that stuff so even if you think about Argentina being very European kind of in a, in a sense like even mm-hmm. their Spanish is not like Mexican Spanish right. or anything like that right it's Castilian Spanish right. and so um, me being basically the only Asian kid and there was another guy that was from Bolivia which is you know not exactly that different but dark-skinned and Mm -hmm. so the the two of us just being picked on endlessly I mean endlessly and so all sorts of name calling and all and all that yeah so I, I can tell you that just based on kind of where you're from and what you look like that that was just I mean elementary school is kind of a place where at least I mean things are starting to change now but there's no uh, filter. I
0: think kids are still jerks.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I don't know. But what were they picking on you about? Was it the skin tone? Your phenotype? I mean, I mean, it's just
2: like or eyes, not being like your eyes. I mean, it's just like there, right. there doesn't have to be any reason
0: to, right. to be completely
2: honest. I mean, like it's Except just, that you're
0: not you're not like,
2: like everybody else. Right. And then, you know, coming to the United States, it was interesting. I mean, jumping into school and that was definitely kind of a weird identity crisis for me. Because I ended up moving into Fort Lee, New Jersey, which is North Jersey, right by New York City. Mm. Very, very diverse to the point where I think it's something like 50% Asian. Mm. But I looked Asian, but inside I was pretty much Argentinian. Wow. So I go and I'm trying to find people who speak Spanish, even though there's a lot of Korean kids around. And ended up that there wasn't any, but so I ended up kind of gravitating to the, to the Italian kid. Interesting. <laughs> so Carmine, if you're listening. <laughs> uh, so Carmine, and then he, he just kind of brought me along. And actually, long story short, same with Argentina and Fort Lee. You kind of find something that, that's common, that, where, where race becomes kind of secondary. And that mm-hmm. for me was soccer.
0: Right, right. So
2: in Argentina, you just play soccer. I mean, if you can play soccer, you can play soccer. You're mm. good. You're good. If you're bad. You're bad. They'll make fun of you for being bad, but that's mm-hmm. that's another story. So it, in Fort Lee, just Carmine, he he played soccer. He's Italian. So I ended up just kind of connecting with people by playing soccer. But then I also found myself kind of becoming more Korean again, even though yeah. I was really, my I mean I I dreamed in Spanish, and spoke in Spanish, everything right. And then I ended up kind of hanging out with the Korean kids and becoming what we call a fob, fresh mm, off the boat. Right. Except I wasn't really fresh off the boat at all. So right. I was a fake fob because I <laughs> came off the boat from Argentina.
0: Right. And so right.
2: I just kind of became something else just to kind of fit in, to make friends. It was it was a very interesting time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask you, do you think that was intentional? Like, did you see yourself purposefully working towards becoming more korean like did you intentionally hang out more with the kids or was it just a byproduct of your community like that's the community you ended up in and so you found yourself gravitating towards becoming more korean
2: I don't, I don't know i mean i was like fifth sixth grade around there so i don't think it was really an intentional thing that i did but maybe more like almost like survival right
0: you're, right. just like
2: mm-hmm. you're you're there you you literally cannot communicate with people <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
2: like literally I mean I remember like one of the girls in class like coming to my desk and giving me some books and like she'll say the only word that she knows is like here yeah, is like it's like your books in Spanish and I'm like whoa okay and like that's the only thing that we could say to each other and like mm-hmm. and nobody spoke Spanish and so I think just there's a need for us to try to, connect with people, right, to, try right. to try to fit in. So um I think I just ended up
0: finding you found your place among the Korean American or Asian American students.
2: And I again I don't want to dominate this conversation, but that's kind of funny because I ended up changing some more, even though there was a big group of my friends that just, you know, hung on to that. Mm -hmm. And and they didn't really want to kind of assimilate further to the United States. And so there was definitely kind of a weird culture of like people who even if they could speak English, they would mm-hmm. just stay in ESL, English as a second right, language. Right. They would stay on that track forever because it was like, yeah. you didn't really have to work that hard. Right, <laughs> right. And so for me, I kind of like stepped out, stepped out, stepped right. out. And then I ended up making friends with other Asians that didn't really speak Korean. So like more of the second gen kids. And so right. I still kind of gravitated towards some of those Asian kids and we became friends. But then, you know, we would speak English to each other, not Korean. So I had another shift and that was more towards high school when I got out of ESL and all my friends kind of like split. A lot of them were still in ESL and they stayed there all through high school, even though they could speak
0: English. It was kind of funny. Right, but, right. but yeah. That's fascinating. Okay, Hetty, how about you? So I
1: came a lot younger. So I think I was like, now that I think back, I think I was four. So I think that again, I was living with my grandparents at the time. And I think it was kind of shocking being so young. And my mom jokes about this story that, um, so we went on the airplane. And then as soon as I got off the airplane, she said that like my aunt, who was picking us up at the airport or meeting us at the airport, I bit her. <laughs> like, so yeah, I, was, I just bit her and like, they just kind of still make fun of me about this to this day. But I think I must've just been overwhelmed because I don't think I was ever on an airplane before I was young. And I think I was scared just going Mm -hmm. somewhere completely new. Mm -hmm. And I think for the first year, you know, because I didn't go to preschool or anything. I was just home with my grandparents. I was still in the Korean language, right? Like I didn't really learn too much English, maybe just Mm -hmm. watch some TV here and there. So when I started going to elementary school, I was also in the ESL English as a Second Language program. But I think it was a lot easier for me to pick up the language because I, I was in ESL for like one year and then I was out. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it was definitely shocking going to school for the first time. And then also my parents were really, really busy working, right? Like they worked, you know, especially later when they owned the fish market, like you have to go get the fish really early in the morning. So they weren't really home. So I remember the first day <laughs> that I went to school, I went with a lunchbox full of candy. That was my lunch. I literally just took candy and I put it in my lunchbox. And then the teacher was just like, is that your lunch? And I was like, yeah. (laughs) I think after that, like, I think the teacher must have said something to my mom. that I had a proper lunch, but it was just like, I think just learning, like, and I couldn't speak English. Right. And Mm. it was just trying to figure my way out. And my brother's older, like we were on the same bus, but it was also like, like, even in the school like on the bus I feel like the bus is like like when I think about my kids and them going to school I feel like the bus just exposes you to lots of things like I, yeah at a really really early age so I remember yeah. the first time like I heard the word chink you know was like oh. in kindergarten on the bus you know and just like you know American curse words and stuff like that so mm. I think it was definitely a rude awakening just being so young and just having to be you know exposed to different things at a young age yeah. so I think it was all just very shocking but you know again for me I think I did that ESL program the first year and then I just went into regular classes after that
0: yeah so what I'm taking away from this is I shouldn't allow my daughter to take the school bus (laughs) because I've been thinking about it because when she sees the bus she's like oh mommy I want to go on a bus and I sometimes think about it like oh that's a big girl thing to do but I remember the school bus (laughs) and uh So thank you for that reminder. No, no. uh, no, I mean, I'm going to have to let her do what she has to do. But what I do hear you all saying is that coming here, you still even have some issues feeling like you fit in, whether it's with your own ethnic community or the American, I guess, students, the other, not your non-ethnic community. There's still this sense of, of course, adjustment that you had to make. And what I also hear is that you, you inevitably gravitate towards your ethnic community, at some point you find the people that are that look more like you or share your language group and you you find a place among them. If I get that wrong, let me know. But that's sort of what I take away. And and, and Jen, to your what you were saying, some of the literature that talks about these cultural identity adjustments speaks to that. And they usually a lot of their research is on Asian Americans, specifically Korean or Chinese American students, where they either totally reject their culture, Or they totally embrace their culture. And one indication of that is the friendship groups they choose. So that's why I was asking you whether or not, did you say to yourself, you may not have remembered, but did you have an internal, like, I'm going to kind of stick with these guys? Or did you kind of just look for people who are interested in soccer? So that's why I was asking that question. Because it's sort of, at least they argue that it's like this internal motivation that we have to fit in, to belong somewhere. Okay. So. I'm curious whether your parents ever had any conversations with you about your identity. I know there was language barriers for you, Jen, but did they ever talk to you about being Asian in America or that's something that never came up?
2: So I would tell you 100% that the tone of those conversations is different than kind of what we would have in mind right now in the year 2021. Right. Where if you talk about identity, racial identity, it'd be like, okay you know, you're Korean, you're different, you should be proud of who you are, right. and that, like embrace the differences, that kind of a tone, as opposed to, I think, that the way that we were raised, I mean, the kinds of things that, that it would be like, the things that have been imprinted on my mind, which I, I don't know how much influence they ended up having now, now that I'm sitting next to my, my wife over here, <laughs> but it, it would be the kinds of things that are like, you are Korean, you need to learn how to speak Korean, write mm-hmm. Korean, read Korean, and you need to marry a Korean person
0: sounds like my dad
2: and that's it that that's kind of the conversations you had it wasn't like right. it wasn't much more much more than that it wasn't this right. like deep thing about like your identity and like you need to be necessarily like proud of who you are or anything like that it was more like you are korean like
0: don't forget who you are and and, and maintain the keep it in the within the culture or ethnic yeah. group was it the same for you hedy
1: I think it's also like for me, my relationship with my parents, like they weren't home a lot because they were working so much. So, you know, even though like lots of different things happened in school where it was just like whether I was made fun of or, or things like that, I never felt comfortable sharing that with my parents. So like, let's say that like, you know, I got bullied at school. It wasn't something that I would share with them and And that even continued because there were definitely events that happened in high school that that have left you know different you know big big things on on my life, but I just never felt comfortable to share with them like, oh, this happened or or that happened and like I think that you know kind of what Jin shared, it was just being Korean was who I was, you know, and it wasn't and because like you know again, I live with my grandparents for such a long period of time, it was just it was just who I am. The language that was spoken was Korean, which slowly faded after time, right? Like the more English that I spoke, the more I came into the house. And I would say that my Korean is probably at a first grade level right mm. now, you know? Yeah, it was nothing that we've ever really talked about. And I think it was just kind of like sometimes the dynamic of, you know, a parent-child relationship in being Korean. I don't, you, do you feel that way, Jen? Like just a relationship dynamic is different. And I hope that, you know, as we raise our kids, that it's you know it's a different dynamic where they, right. if something happened with them and you know we've experienced this with Ellie like you know in elementary school as well where th- different incidents and ha- has happened that she's more willing to talk with us about it and we could talk through her emotions and feelings so yeah I, I just feel like it's just such a different yeah you know,
0: I'm just realizing you two have Korean names the <laughs> but in contrast to what many maybe Chinese or maybe Japanese Americans do at least they changed their names. Did you ever have an American name or did your parents decide they didn't want to give you an American version of your name or something or?
1: Well, I still struggle with my name to this day. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cause like in, so what, my name is Hedy in Korean. And like when they came to America, you know, you basically have to, to like say, Hey, this is how I spell my name. Right. And mm-hmm. it kind of stays with you because it goes onto your social security card and all your documents. And so my parents thought that the H-Y-E was a H sound where a lot of people, when they read H-Y-E, it's a high sound, like high mm-hmm. bye. Mm-hmm. So I think at some point in my life, like I tried to, for a while, I tried to correct my teachers in school and said, my name is Hetty. And then I remember distinctly having a teacher in, I think it was like elementary or middle school who said, no, I'm going to call you Hiry because that's how your name is read. And after mm-hmm. that, I think that left a really big, because, you know, I'm like, why wouldn't I know my name? Right. Why wouldn't I know how to say my own name? And but after that, it was just like, I think this confusion for me being like, OK, so I guess I should go by Hyri because that's how it's read by some American people and stuff. So then I've kind of created this like alternate identity, like even in work where it's just easier to say, OK, my name is Hyri, like Hi, really? you know, re oh, so no. like at work right now, I think most people know me as Hyri. Oh. And I and I think I've just kind of come and accepted that and stuff. Where you know, if I say, "Oh, Hetty is my Korean name, Hyeri is my American <laughs> name," and I think also just kind of grappling with that, and that kind of affects my everyday. And it's like I've kind of learned how, like, because at work even now I go by Hyeri, and I just respond to it. It's just who I am and stuff. And then at home, like Jen, my parents, and just people who I'm like closer with and stuff, they call me Hetty. So I feel sometimes like I have two, I'm two people based on just even
0: my name. Yeah. Wow. That's very interesting. I want to share that. I think my dad, his approach was similar to what Jen said. You are Nigerian. You will marry a Yoruba person. That's the ethnic group within the country, one of the ethnic groups. And you, you should speak Yoruba, which I never did. He was trying to teach me, but, but they tell me a story about my name. And apparently I wanted to be like, I wanted to change my name because people were calling me Oklahoma, my full name is Oma Tayo, or old McDonald. And I used to hate it. And I guess whatever my parents told me made me so proud of my name that to this day I'm like Tayo. Nope, nope, Ta Can you say it? Ta, <laughs> you know? And the only other name I have is my Starbucks name, which is Ty. And it's only because I just like that they call me Ty. I, I never had a nickname before, so I was like, okay. So I do that. But I become so adamant about my name being pronounced correctly. And I think it's because of my what my dad and my mom did. But my mother, she was the first to teach me about being black in America. And she was the first to say, if someone stops you, put your hand on the wheel and all this other stuff. But Jen, how about you?
2: I don't think it was a decision by anybody. I think you just you're you're kind of filling out paperwork. Again, I don't really know because I was pretty young.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But um, you just that's your name and that 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 is what it is. And so. I mean, I, I remember just random conversations throughout the years. So they are like, "Hey, you should get an American name." It's like we should call you yeah. like George or something. And I remember yeah. that, but <laughs> George um, doesn't fit you. Uh, <laughs> so no, nah, it was never really a serious consideration at all. It was, maybe it was just a joke here or there, but not really. So, but
0: now both of you now have named your children though. You've given them English names. Do they also have Korean names?
2: They do. Uh, okay. So they they both have. Um, actual official middle names that that are korean so
0: okay so what what went into your decision making with that like when you chose to name them it was
1: very intentional i think also because like you know with korean names as well like you know you have like two separate like kind of words or characters so it's like jin sung right mm-hmm. and then i'm hae e but then, again, like, even when I came to America, it was separated, like, H-Y-E, and then technically my middle name was Ri, oh, okay. you know? So people would call me Hi. They'd be like, hi, 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 you know, and stuff. So I think that through my name struggles growing here and also Jin, like, no one really knows how to pronounce the song. They call him, like, Jin Sung on oh, yeah, or, you yeah, know, yeah, Ann or whatever. Yeah. So... I think when we had kids or when we were having Ellie, we we're like, we need to name her something that's very easy to pronounce, right? Like something mm. that's easy that, you know, and even for Katie too, we were like, we need an easy name, you know? But we also didn't want to lose like the Koreanness. And I think there's like a part of Korean culture where the grandparents name the Korean name. So we were like, well, we want to keep that in their name. And so that, that's, that's something that they're proud of. And so we kind of, you know took the, their Korean name like so Ellie's Korean name is Chihe, which means wisdom, and Katie's Korean name is Unhe which means grace. So we just kind of, you know again, the the two I don't know if it'd be characters, but you know how they're separated in Korean, We kind of smooshed them together and just kind of made one you know middle name, Chihe and inhe,
0: so when you all were planning your family, did you think about did you did you all have conversations about how you would either maintain some of the culture or? was this something you thought about the cultural identity of your children
2: i mean it's it's who we are right Mm -hmm. and so we we are not far removed enough because i I guess we would both consider ourselves to be 1.5 generation Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. we weren't born in the u.s Mm -hmm. but we came when we were pretty young Mm -hmm. so even though i mean again my korean again it's the same as hetty probably like first grade level mm, or something like you're that
1: better Maybe a <laughs> um,
2: but we definitely culturally are Korean so mm-hmm. I don't think it's a matter of we we never had to kind of make a conscious decision to be like hey we're gonna raise you to know that you're Korean because we are Korean it's part of who mm-hmm. it's part of who we are we're mm-hmm. we're not so far removed even though I mean definitely we're getting to the point where there's a lot more American quote-unquote in us Mm-hmm. so a lot of the sort of the way that we live the way that we act might be more more towards that but I think Hetty has a thought so I'm gonna
1: <laughs> no so I think that because we've been in predominantly Caucasian areas where we've been living whether it was mm. state college or even where we live here in the suburbs of Philadelphia I think that we have to I don't know if it's necessarily something that we planned before we had kids but I think now and especially when you know as, as our oldest gets you know, she starts noticing wow, there aren't that many mm-hmm. people who look like me, you know. Right. And mm-hmm. I think especially in state college, like I think that there were times where it just felt like, you know, it was just very Caucasian there, you know. Right. So I think, you know, we it's in preschool, I think specifically, just knowing that she was like maybe one or two like only Korean. I think, yeah, I think there were only a couple, if at most, like Korean preschool kids. Mm-hmm. And I think we had to have that conversation early, like yes, we're we're different. You know, you're Korean, but I think that just trying to keep it in a positive light. and specifically, like we have a friend who she is from Korea, right? Um she came here for grad school, and she was sharing about her experience of like her daughter and how she kind of really rejected her, you know, her Asian identity because there were so many people around her, and mm-hmm. that she was like probably one of the only Asian kids, right? in a predominantly like Caucasian school, and how even when she went to Korea like she basically rejected the culture and the food and she was like you know I don't want to be Asian I don't want to be Korean and like she would have conversations with me and this was like right when Ellie was like really little and she's like just you know I she was like you know just try to show Ellie just that it's you know something that to be proud of to be Korean Mm. and I think that conversation really lasted in my mind Because I think from a really young age, I was like, oh, we're Korean and I love it. I love the food. I love the Mm -hmm. culture. And, you know, with BTS now, we love the music. (laughs) It's just like, you know, something to celebrate instead of it being something to be ashamed about because she's going to be different.
0: Right. So when Ellie says that she makes remarks that insinuate or speak to the idea that she may not fit in, how do you counsel her? What do you what do you tell her?
1: I think we just kind of, again, just try to celebrate. We're like, you know, we're different. We're Korean, but our, we have such a rich culture and heritage. And it's also like whether it's like, you know, just the food or just even just being able to understand a different language, because I would say that her, under, her skills of understanding are a lot better than the speaking skills and stuff. And just I think just being proud of who we are, you know, and knowing and recognizing that, like, especially where we live right now, it's going to be predominantly Caucasian but it's okay. It's okay to be different. And, you know, and I think just kind of like doing this in like the everyday, right. So in, instead of waiting for, I guess, like a certain incident to happen, I think every day we just kind of say, you know, it's awesome. Like, it's awesome that like grandma gets to cook for us and make us like birthday soup, which is cook, meal and not to be ashamed of eating seaweed, another mm-hmm. like pain point in my childhood, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, but just not to be afraid of like the food we eat, but just to kind of celebrate it. And I think that it's more of like an everyday thing, just being proud of who we are and, and, you know, and the culture of, you know, being
0: Korean. And how about community? Are you intentional about the community you place them in?
1: Yeah, I think for our church, like we go to a pretty predominantly Asian church, but I would also say predominantly Korean. And I think because of like where we live here, I think we felt like it was important to go to, you know, an Asian church where she can be around other Asian friends, um, where she can kind of like, you know, who are also like second generation children and stuff, and also just kind of like be in that community. I think was definitely an intentional and an important decision for us.
0: Right, Jen, did you have something to say? You were looking uh, for words. No, I,
2: I think that I just kind of I'm I'm doing a mental survey of my life
0: mm.
2: and and thinking about just relationships friendships and I think it kind of goes back to kind of where our conversation started there is some comfort in the homogeneous mm-hmm. community uh, because we have the shared experiences shared culture shared pain and all mm-hmm. that so I we do have a good amount of Asian friends mm-hmm. and so I think we naturally have a lot of those relationships in place already and so there's definitely a, a, a little bit of a weird, I guess, the way that our lives kind of work out is like, OK, I guess school and our school district and where we live is whatever, like 80 percent, 75 percent, somewhere around there. We we just saw the numbers recently, Caucasian and our church might be like 60, 70 percent Asian or something like that. It's kind of it's just starting to shift a little bit now. But but anyway, so honestly, as children grow up, I mean, it's definitely they point out kind of how we see things and uh, and they challenge our own understanding of things right Mm -hmm. because i mean one of the very first conversations you're going to have with your kids if you're not black Mm -hmm. is they're like hey how come we call them black because they're actually not black they should be brown or you know that's one of the very first conversations we end up having and then we have to kind of talk about like okay what can we say? What can we not say? Mm-hmm. And all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so I would say for our kids, I mean, Ellie's being almost 10, she's definitely much more mature and aware of some of these differences. But but for Katie, I mean, friends are friends and
1: mm-hmm.
2: they choose their friends based on just, you like Paw Patrol? Okay. Yeah.
0: You
1: like,
2: <laughs> you like Avengers? Okay. I mean, it's yeah. so it's... Yeah.
1: But I feel like even at a really young age, like even this year, she did kindergarten through Zoom. Right. And Mm -hmm. um, in the online class that she did, like there were probably like four or five black students. Right. Out of a class of like 25. And that's like with the demographics in our district, it's a pretty good amount. And like she would notice she's like, oh, I have like four or five black friends in my class and stuff. And she would say stuff like that. And I'd be like, that's so awesome. Like, that's so awesome Mm -hmm. that you get to meet different friends and make different friends who are like Asian or black. And, and I thought that that was actually one great thing about kindergarten for her mm-hmm. this year and with like going online. So I just feel like even at a young age, they, they notice. You they know?
0: do. In fact, the psychologists believe that around the age of three or four, they can tell if they can tell the difference between a green crayon and, and a <laughs> brown, you know, they, they know colors and they see differences in hair texture. My, my daughter is always like, how come my hair doesn't, fall like so-and-sos or isn't lay like so-and-sos. And And so they can tell the difference. It's just that we, it's up to us to teach them how to value and appreciate the difference, I think. Mm -hmm. So I hear you say that you are cultivating pride in being Korean among your children. How about being American? Do you want them to feel proud of being American as well? Or how do you sort of hold those two identities together? Because they're growing up here, they're second generation. Do you want them to go back to Korea? Are you planning on going back to Korea or this is their home now, So how do you teach them that they also belong here as well?
2: so this is a not things that we typically talk about at home, this <laughs> might be a surprise to hetty, but I, I mean, she knows what how I feel about stuff. I would actually challenge this whole notion of American pride to just say that culture as a whole, I think there's definitely a segment of quote unquote Americans even though we shouldn't need air quotes because we're all American right. <laughs> but I, I would say there's definitely a segment of people who feel less proud of being American these days right, right. so i I don't know if that's necessarily a point of pride sometimes one thousand percent i mean i'm i I look at the world, I look at the privileges that we have mm-hmm. in this country and and I appreciate those things but mm-hmm. I probably don't look at things and be like, wow, it's like, we're the best, you know, kind of like, right? Which is kind of yeah. what probably even 10 years ago, I mean, I probably would have agreed with that, but it's like, yes, America's yeah. the best, America's the best, but mm. I think things have definitely been shifting. Again, I mean, we are very clear about talking about what privilege we have just living here I mean, even within America, we are privileged, right? Mm-hmm. But just the general privilege of being in America, and also the specific privileges that we that that we have.
0: When you say specific privileges, are you talking about your privilege as an Asian American?
2: No, just socioeconomic, education, that kind of stuff.
0: And okay, in some ways, those are so, that has been associated with being Asian American. At one point, Asian Americans were the second highest in owning assets in the country in the United States or highest in socioeconomic right. something. So that's why I was wondering if that's what you meant, but no, you're just talking specifically about your personal.
2: Yeah.
1: Thing, right. And I think that there are, is definitely a privilege of being Asian American, you know, cause you have these reverse stereotypes, right? Like mm-hmm. where even I remember when I was changing school districts in eighth grade, I think that the school district I was in previously, like I was at a higher math level. So when I went to the, My new school district, they're like, oh, let's just ship you off. I was in eighth grade. They were like, let's just ship you off to the high school to take like college level math with 11th graders and stuff. And I, and you know, it's just interesting because I feel like sometimes that reverse stereotype of Asians and that we're really good at math and, Mm. and that, you know, I think that that can be a privilege because people are willing to give you different opportunities. And, and I was really bad at math. Like I wasn't bad. (laughs) Like I ended up like in 11th grade taking AP calculus and I had to drop out because I just didn't get it, you know? But then also I was giving the privilege of dropping out without it affecting, you know, my great point. Mm-hmm. They just got rid of it totally, you know. Yeah. But I think that there is definitely that stereotypes that can be work as a privilege. Yeah,
0: they can work as a privilege. A friend of mine who is Korean, he does a lot of research on bicultural Asian-American identity. And I learned from him, though, that a lot of Asian-Americans within the community have committed suicide because of the pressure of yeah. the, the model minority stereotype. So I was really fascinated by that fact when he shared that. So with the anti-Asian sentiment that's sort of erupted since COVID, and what I'm thinking about actually is just this ebb and flow of stereotypes of Asians that this country has had. Because in the 1800s, the Chinese were seen as these terrible people, right? And because they're ruining our country and they're taking our jobs, you know, the same thing we hear today about Mexicans and any other group that we're not in favor with at the moment, and there was a Chinese Exclusion Act that led to a lot of Chinese leaving California, and then of course we have Pearl Harbor and all those things. Mm-hmm. And then with the tech boom, you got the positive. And now with coronavirus, there's this terrible anti-Asian sentiment that's arisen, and I, and I'm wondering how you all make sense of it, and how do you help? Are your kids aware? How do you help your kids make sense of some of the stereotypes that exist about their community?
1: So I think for us like particularly as a family, I think we've been pretty COVID conscious. So like, I think that the kids aren't as exposed to it as much because they've been doing school at home. We've been, you know, in the, especially in the beginning of the pandemic, we're like self isolate, you know, we're isolating as a family. So we've just been kind of keeping to ourselves a lot and stuff, but now that things are opening back up, you know, it is definitely concerning because even at the beginning of the pandemic, like you would read these news articles where Asian people would be on the subway, even in the suburbs of Philly, and people would just beat them up, right? Because they were Asian. And, you know, as soon as I I read those stories, I was like, Jen, you know, and this was a, at this time, I was, you know, I transitioned to a job that was in the city. And I was like, you know, if they're going to require me to go into the city, I'm going to tell them that I'm not going to take public transportation because, you know, this was definitely a fear that was real to me. And, you know, it it was just, such a sad sentiment where you would go online, you know, social media, and you would read things like, oh, so sad that so and so died because of a virus that came from China, you know, and just different, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. And you're just like, it just makes you feel very like sad. And, you know, we talked before about how, like being American, right? And I think for me, like knowing that I was different, like I always defended, like, I have every right to be here
0: mm-hmm.
1: as you do. I am a citizen, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and no matter. How I look, or how I, you know, where I grew up, or even where I was born. Like, I'm a citizen, so my rights are the same as every other citizen. And I think that just knowing that people were like kind of blaming the Asian, you know, Asians for this virus, I think it definitely kind of left the mark on me, especially earlier on in the pandemic, because you're just like, you know, yeah. it's a disease and it, it definitely is hard. And just kind of like, you know, especially with my parents who are older. And just having that conversation where you're just like, mom, can you please be careful when you go out? Like, you know, especially, you know, when it was more news of the, you know, Asian elderly population just being attacked. I think that, you know, again, my first concern was more for my parents, you know, and Mm -hmm. especially my mom, you know, being a woman, you know, being an older Asian woman just please be safe, you know? And she's like, oh, don't worry, I'm fine, you know? But I think just definitely having those concerns.
2: Right. I was just gonna say that for me, there's a little bit of, uh, I see it. I know it's real. And I know that it's happening to people like me, but just not seeing it in front of me as much, at least where I live yet. I mean, knowing kind of where, Like my upbringing, my my reality. I mean, one thing that that was just kind of shocking for our family was just we're playing tennis just a couple of years ago down the street, and just kids passing by on bikes, just yelling "ching chong, ching chong" or whatever, and and we're just like in front of our kids, and not provoked in any way, shape, or form. They're just passing by, and they you know that's what they thought would be funny and appropriate at the moment for them. So. It's kind of interesting just because we have to talk about it with our kids. We have to. And we will have those conversations every time an event comes up. It kind of, you know, triggers. And then we have to, like, kind of have the conversation again. Just be like, just just so you know, I mean,
0: this is happening. What do you say is happening? But how do you help them make sense of people having commentary about their very existence, what they look like?
1: I think for me, it's also where like my faith comes in. Cause mm-hmm. when that happened, I was like, you know, I can retaliate out of anger, but these are, you know, for me, it was kids. They were probably like middle schoolers. So I did say, Hey guys, that's not okay for you to say something like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little bit more. spirited. Than those <laughs> words. Um, but then, you know, I turned to my children. and I was like, let's pray for them. You mm-hmm. know, let's pray that like, you know, that they can learn that, that what they're doing is not okay, you know? And then I think as a family, we can be gracious and we can forgive them, you know? And I think that was probably one of the only moments that our kids have experienced something like that in our, you know, in the community. But I think it's also just reminding them just like, you know, that the different things happen and to have conversations, you know, and especially like with just all the things that happened this past year with like the violence towards, you know, the black community and Mm -hmm. stuff, I think intentionally like just bringing that up to our children and, and praying, I think praying through that, praying about the violence, praying about the inequity and injustice that, you know, especially the black community is facing. And I think just trying to show them that, you know, to know that like it's out there, But that, you know, we can definitely have hope in Christ and knowing that like all people like the way that he made them, Mm -hmm. you know, that we're we're the same in his eyes. So I think that that's definitely an important part for us Mm -hmm. and just how we raise our kids. Yeah,
2: I think that we want them to know what is happening. I mean, maybe not with the graphic details, but just just know that, you know, in New York City, this random person just decided that I don't know where they were going to beat up this person mm-hmm. <laughs> for, for no other reason than that, than that they're Asian, but also, again, kind of our perspective on it, trying to not say it's like all people, this is what they think, you know? Right. And so, I mean, we, we do definitely talk about sin a lot that, that it's, this, this, these people are, are sinful <laughs> and it's just, that's, that's sort of the simplistic sort of explanation, I guess. But that's kind of our, uh, that that's our worldview. That's how we make sense of it. Because if we try to explain it much more than that, it, it, it actually, it, it's almost nonsensical. It's just like right. somebody who's just going to attack somebody for a 70 or 80 year old yeah. grandma that's just walking down the street. I mean, how can we make sense of that? We can't, right.
1: And also teaching them like, you know, because again, with that, specific story like there were people who closed the door right Mm -hmm. like the people who are in the building they just ignored this woman on the street and closed the door and I think just teaching our kids that we need to stand up against injustice right like we can't just be people if we see injustice to close the door and ignore it and and Mm -hmm. you know and I think that's why I think uh, for our family we share these stories so we Mm -hmm. know that like you know I think that we're called to action and to Mm -hmm. not ignore you know, injustice as well. So I think that's that's also like, you know, and it's just been different things, right? Whether it's like, you know, the violence against Asian community or just like even when, as different events come up, I think it's important for us to share about it just so that, you know, they can see that, you know, you can make a stand against it and stuff. Right.
0: And I think that's really important, especially as we think about standing up for all people. I know a lot of the videos when it first came out, featured Black Americans targeting Asians. And then it came out that it's not just Black Americans. But I know there's also been this tension between Black Americans and Asians historically. And I remember when I first came to Harvest, I didn't think about, I mean, I knew that I was Black, but I didn't think about that because there was worship and I love worship. (laughs) But then over time, I learned about some of the prejudices that exist within Asian families towards Black people. And um I mentioned earlier about Hassan Hanaj, who I am probably a stalker of, but he, in one of his episodes of Patriot Act, he exposed the Indian community and, and called them out for not standing up for Black Americans and for holding possessing attitudes that contribute to the oppression of Black Americans as well. So I guess my question for you is: how do you raise your children to not possess some of the racist ideologies that maybe previous generations of of Asians have held and and I am generalizing based on what people have told me what things I've read but maybe you have stories that counter that I know it's not all Asians like I'm not trying to do that but I have the impression that there are beliefs um there they have tensions between Asians and um, Asian Americans and Black Americans that sort of have silenced or led to Asian Americans being silenced generally being silenced when Black Americans are going through their thing and I'm like we're all going through something we need to come together you know So how do you help your kids navigate through those things?
1: I think it's fighting, you know, cuz I think as you were sharing and just kind of the different ideas that you heard, I think for me and I think also for Jin, that is what we've experienced growing up and stuff. And and for me, like my parents having a small business in like a black neighborhood where they also experienced a lot of racism, not being very good English speakers and right. just kind of like the different things. I think that that definitely affected me as well in the way that i was raised Mm -hmm. and i think it's just intentionally fighting that it's intentionally fighting those stereotypes and stuff and i think also as we raise our kids to show them that like okay yes as asians we experience racism but like i think the racism that black people not even Americans, black people Mm -hmm. experience in america is it's so terrible like you know where somebody looks at you by the color of your skin and just where you could die you know like or mm-hmm. just that like you know things are like it's just so inequitable and I think just kind of raising them and showing them that and just saying hey this is what we need to recognize and like kind of fight against and stuff and I think just with the news of this past year and just all the shootings and and just everything I think it's like talking about it and stuff and just kind of showing a glimpse of like you know, what Black America is experiencing and also just showing them this is not okay. You know, this is not okay. And I think as Asians where, you know, yeah, like um, I've experienced like racism with like the community, you know, that I live in. But like from a personal side, like I, I've never had, felt like I had to be afraid of the police you know or mm, people who right. were are supposed to protect me but this is completely different so I think and also just with the systemic racism and just kind of like how it even goes into just like jobs education and everything and just kind of talking about it right and just showing mm. that like it is something that we all need to kind of fight against and stuff. Right. And I think that that's been something that's been really important just even as we raise our kids
0: Yeah, I I remember reaching out to a a fellow church member at the church I go to now, and he's Chinese American. So when I heard about the news, I reached out and I was like, I hope you guys are feeling okay." And he really touched me with his response. He's like, you know, it doesn't feel good to know that this is happening, but I'm even more concerned that this is going to overshadow the Black Lives Matter movement Mm -hmm. or the actual issues that impact Black people. And I was just touched because we need to have empathy for one another. We need to be able to say, I'm sorry that you're going through this without trying to play, uh, what do they call, oppression Olympics. So I'm going through more than you. It's not about that. But if we could just have empathy for each other, I think we can do amazing things, especially when it comes to how we raise our kids and how we cultivate their consciousness about how we're more connected than we are. We're more similar than we are different, you know. But Jen, I didn't know if you had, I see you looking for your, I see your your mind going. (laughs)
2: a lot of the questions that that you have are are great because they challenge you know what I should be doing Mm. (laughs) but I think generally the answer that I keep think kind of going back to is if it's not part of who I am it's going to be tough to instill really change Mm. and so when I think about like how do I raise my kids to be x y and z and to have certain types of values certain types of beliefs I think it's yeah I just think about okay that we need to be consistent in daily you know being the type of people that that we want them to be you know
1: Mm -hmm.
2: so that that's kind of what I keep kind of thinking about as I as I look around the room (laughs) chasing my thoughts
0: (laughs) yeah I saw your eyes going yeah I think about my daughter, and admittedly I was trying to run away from the Nigerian community when I got here, because there's a reputation of Nigerians being nosy and all that. I mean, but it depends on what community you're talking about. I was just used to that where I grew up, and then I became pregnant, and I'm like, I want her to have a community." Mm. And I worked towards building that because I didn't want her to be ashamed of her name. But then I got to a place of, I want her to have friendships like me. Like I have friends from all over. I want her to to know that people are different and it's okay and to embrace the differences and um, where I live in Cincinnati I haven't yet accessed the diversity that I am looking for but thankfully I have all these other friendships but everyone's no you guys don't live here but I'm hoping that through connecting with my friend's kids that she can cultivate a sense of yeah you have your heritage I have mine Mm -hmm. and We're different. And this is the food you eat. And I can try your curry and you can try my goosey stew and and we're okay. I want her to feel comfortable in that. And I also want her to have a sense of self that is connected to something greater. Of course, her spiritual identity, who she is as God's creation, but also as a person who's a part of a larger global community. And one way I think I can do that, I'm hoping to achieve that is through the friendships I'm trying to cultivate for her <laughs> or <laughs> so maybe I'm doing too much, but I'm, I'm hoping that through my friendships that maybe she can meet other kids who are not just Nigerian, who are not just white American, but have a different background. So I'll, I'll end with this. So I mentioned to you this book that's coming out, Dreams for All Children, and you weren't able to write a letter for the book, but I'm curious. In two sentences, what do you want to say to your children to prepare them for their future in the United States?
2: Two sentences <laughs>
0: <laughs> it could be more. I was trying to guide you here, but you know
2: I think that my it's kind of what I live by, and so I would want you know that's kind of what we want for our children, right to kind of grow up with the same same values that we have and so, at the expense of oversimplifying things, I think sometimes we maybe we need to oversimplify certain things. I think that For me, just I kind of go back to when when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment is. I mean, Mm -hmm. he simplified it to love God, love your neighbor. And so I think if they can do that, regardless of where they are, again, it's not necessarily about whether you're in America or or Korea or Argentina, but I think if they can keep kind of their priorities straight, really love God and love people, I, I think they'll be all right. Yeah, that that, that it's simple, but really, really, really hard to do. And like to really love love people, you know?
1: It is, yeah.
2: Because um, I think we're kind of selfish by nature, but.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I was thinking the same thing for my first sentence. And then I think for a second sentence would be to accept who they are. You know, just know that like, especially with my oldest, like they don't need to be perfect, right? Mm-hmm. But just to kind of also just. Be proud of who they are, accept who they are. I think that that would be my second sentence.
0: Wow. Well, Hedy and Jen, I appreciate you sharing your stories and your insights with me and with my listening audience. And I look forward to being able to talk to you some more. So thank you so much for being a part of the show.
1: Well, Thank you, Tayo.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, share with others, and leave a rating and review. You can also follow the Unapologetically Us blog. That's un-apologetically-us.com.